we were one of the first two companies to implement a nationwide network-based point of service plan, um, which was very disruptive at the time. Uh, it was moving away from indemnity and moving into managed care. Welcome to Broken Benefits. I'm your host, Lee Lewis, and this is a podcast where we learn from top employer experts on how to fix our broken benefits to save lives, save dollars, and save your talent. Welcome back everyone to Broken Benefits. I am your host, uh, Lee Lewis, and today's guest is Brian Marcotte. Brian ran benefits uh, for a little over two decades for Honeywell, one of the one of the larger employers in the United States, and is uh, responsible during that time for a health plan that covered over 150,000 lives and was spending over half a billion dollars annually. And during the uh, during the height of his tenure, he went for seven straight years with absolutely flat trend during the absolute highest period of our of our uh, industry's history on trend, um, excluding 2022. Anyway, super excited to bring him here. Brian, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Lou. Louis, uh, great to uh, spend some time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to start a little bit, maybe tell us a little bit of your story of some of the high points uh, that occurred during your uh, during your time managing benefits at Honeywell. Um, you know, actually, I, I'd start um, with one before even Honeywell. Oh, okay, um, that's great. I was at I was at Marriott before Honeywell for four and a half years. I said, Lewis, I'm sorry, it's Lee. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, you're good. You're good. You're get two first names. You gotta, you know, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta deal with that. Um, uh, when I when I came to Marriott, um, they were very interested in implementing uh, managed care. Now we're talking like 1990, and uh, we were one of the first two companies to implement a nationwide network-based point of service plan, um, which was very disruptive at the time. Uh, it was moving away from indemnity and moving into managed care and doing it on a national basis, every single market, every single employee, every business line um, was probably one of the biggest challenges I've ever had. Um, and it's, um, it got a lot of attention at the time because it was groundbreaking. Allied Signal, ironically, was the first company to do that on a nationwide basis, and that's where I ended up. Yeah, wow. if, if you know the story, Allied Signal bought Honeywell, took Honeywell name eventually, but okay. I ended up going from Merit to Allied Signal at one point. But I would say that was the first thing that I did that was impactful, both from a cost perspective and employee relations perspective provider relations perspective, because providers were very reluctant to go into networks at that time. Um, and that was huge and, and pretty significant before I even went to, to Honeywell. Everyone now just a quick word from today's sponsor. Hey dad, have you seen my PlayStation? People who work for companies just like yours are desperate for any way to pay their medical debt. Support your employees by giving them 100% medical coverage with Catalyze Health. Now, how did you how did you go about discovering that strategy and then figuring out how you'd bring it to bear? We worked with a consultant and actually a consultant who is 
still a very good friend of mine. We forged that relationship back in the day, Sid Stoltz. And Sid and I, um, yeah, he was working for Towers Perrin at the time. Um, and if you think about technology back then, right, going to dark ages, we mapped out every single market using pins on a map in terms of distance to providers and trying to, and trying to make sure that the network adequacy was in place. It was the only way we could do it. We'd look at the addresses of providers and we'd pinpoint them on a map to make sure that we could roll this network out and be confident that we had coverage for all of our employees in each of the each of the markets we were rolling out in. You know, the biggest challenge was changing providers. You know, this was again your first shot at it. you get an in-network benefit and you get an out-of-network benefit. And if you use out-of-network providers and if you don't go through your PCP, because this was a gatekeeper model, you had to have a PCP. Um, everything's paid out of network. So, you know, I would come in the morning and I would have a stack of those pink sheets from my secretary with somebody calling me. You know, each morning there'd be a stack of people who wanted to call back to give me a hard time about what we were doing. And, you know, wow. we really had to forge ahead. Um, we did a roadshow, every single major market presenting to all of the, the uh, business leaders um, and HR people what we were doing and why we were doing it. And the change management that went into this was just incredible. And mm. of course we had some bumps because you know, this really hadn't been done too much at this point. And, you know, providers not taking new patients and, um, you know, people not signing up for PCPs. And so there were a lot of challenges back in the day. And as you know, the point of service model when it first came out, it didn't quite work the way we were told it was going to work. It was, you know, run everything through your PCP and everything would be covered in network. So the PCP had a responsibility for steering you to best providers or steering you to specialists within the network. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to do that. This was all new oh. to them. They didn't know who was in network, who was out of network. They had their, their, um, their favorite providers that they like to refer to. So there were mm. claims that were triggering out of network because PCPs didn't know that they had that responsibility. Employees didn't know that they had to go through their PCP to go to a specialist. You know, you can do change management at a high level, but if you don't need healthcare for a while, then you go to access. It's the same problem today. It's out of sight, out of mind. And what am I supposed to right. do? So there were significant hurdles we had to overcome, but we overcame them. And as you know, managed care and point of service plans became pretty much the standard by the mid nineties. And, uh, and we were one of the first companies to do it. And I ended up going to the company that was the first company to do it. Wow. One of the, it's, it's like the old saying, everything old is new again. What do you think are lessons that you learned from doing that, that we might be able to apply to the concept of advanced primary care today, where, where we are trying to find mm -hmm. and activate, you know, aligned interest value-based primary care that's yeah. integrated with point solutions and behavioral health, and then use that as a referral mechanism to go, not just in network, but to steer to value. What, what are some lessons learned that, that we could apply today? Well, I think the, the first fundamental is you have to change the financing, how you're paying those providers. Uh, mm. you, need, you need to have providers to be at risk to some degree to deliver healthcare and it has to make up at least a third of their practice so that it actually is influencing mm. behavior change. So I would say that the financing model, fee-for-service doesn't work. Um, traditional primary care is broken partly because fee-for-service really um, doesn't work. They're not, 
if I'm not going to get paid to do something, I'm not going to do it. I mean, that's just human behavior. Um, right. The tools that we have today are much more sophisticated than what we had, if we had any back then mm -hmm. when we were doing this. Yeah. Everything was paper-based. Everything was communication, referral patterns, and everything was faxing and, and the like. You know, now there are more sophisticated systems to help providers understand who the better providers are in a market to steer to, because that should, in an advanced primary merit, primary care model like like Firefly, for example, which is, some, is, a, is an organization I'm very high on in terms of how they're approaching primary care. Um, all that coordination and all of that navigation, as we call it, should be with, ideally, your primary care team. Absolutely. Um, I think they put too much pressure on the primary care physician back then without leveraging the capability of a multidisciplinary team. You know, your primary care physician was supposed to treat you behaviorally. He was supposed to make referrals. He was supposed to, you know, be the, you know, the font of all knowledge on all of this. Um, you know, there was no leveraging of nurses, no leveraging of, of integrate or no thought of integrating behavioral health specialists in. Uh, you know, so I think there were so many lessons learned from managed care when it first came out to what the advanced primary care models are attempting to do today. And I think that financing piece is important because it gives you the flexibility if I'm at risk, I'm going to do things outside the box that wouldn't normally be paid in, in, in fee-for-service. You know, the great example that, um, that someone shared with me once where they had an advanced primary care model in place, they had a, a, an employee who had, uh, was a frequent flyer to the ER. You know, you know, every week or two, they're running to the ER because of asthma issues. Uh, and so... What they did is they sent a team into their house to assess the environment. They ended up ripping out the carpeting. They ended up changing the filters in their air conditioning. Um, they, they created more of a clean environment for that individual. And guess what? That person stopped going to the ER. And per, the, 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 the consumer was delighted because they didn't have to pay for this. You know, it probably cost as much as an ER visit to do that, or maybe two. Wow. We eliminated it. And, you know, in a fee-for-service world, that would never be paid for. But in, a, in an environment where you own the population health management and you're trying to figure out how do I elevate the health of this population, and I'm at risk for that, I'm willing to step outside the box and be innovative and nimble in how I approach this without worrying about how I'm going to get paid. And I think that's one of the fundamental differences, I think, of, of what the advanced primary care models are trying to do today versus what we, what we told PCPs they had to do 30 years ago. Was it 30 years ago? 30 years ago. I'm really wow. aging myself. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're aging well. That's, that's <laughs> terrific. I, looking at this, one of the big challenges we have is uh, where do we refer when we do have to refer outside the primary care, which we want to do sparingly, how do we know where to refer you? We have things like RAND that gives us pricing. Uh, there's some transparency pricing that is, that has also been reported. We've got leapfrog who does safety grades. And then we've got a myriad of, of different vendors who each have, um, you know, different models to be able to show, variations of cost and quality and invasiveness and appropriateness. How do, where do we start and, and how do we know when we're good enough? Yeah. You know, I, I think that um, that will always be a continuous improvement process because we know we're pulling a lot of this from claims um, and we don't necessarily have the, 
the frontline access to, um, I would say, uh, what's in the EMR that would be much more impactful in terms of rounding out what you know of provider performance and outcomes and the like. But having said that, I think it's advanced to a point where, you, where there are many organizations that have a pretty good idea who the better providers are in the market from, a, from an efficiency and from an outcomes perspective. And they have, in, in many respects, automated that so they can, they can virtually steer you to better providers. Um, and they can, you know, you can do a stake and even surface better providers in a search so that your top three or four providers will be those providers that are the best orthopedics in the market or the best, um, um, the best at diabetes management or whatever the case may be. And, and, and so I think the technology is there to support it and that there's enough data to support and identify the better providers in the market that we can do steerage. And when you arm advanced primary care models with that type of capability, then you're, you're not just referring to the guy I referred to for the last 15 years because he's my buddy and I think he does a good job and I have no idea whether or not how he stacks up to others in the market and I'm not at risk for whatever he does. Well, if I'm at risk for total cost of care, I want to make sure this person's going to the best provider who's going to deliver the best outcome at the most efficient cost. So I think when you align the financing and the data and the technology, you're in a much better position to, to basically say, look, this is not your grandfather's primary care model, right? This is a very different approach to how we do primary care going forward. I love that. The align the incentives, provide the data. We're all looking at the same data, enable the technology and wrap it in a continuous improvement process. I, I love that. You know, you know, one thing I'd add, um, Lee, is that three years ago at the business group in our health innovations forum, we took a step back and we whiteboarded primary care. We, we got a design thinking facilitator. We brought all the employers in the room um, for a day and a half. And we just, what do we want out of primary care? And, and the impetus behind this initiative had to do with um, all of the different point solutions taken slices of primary care, whether it was symptom checkers or, or uh, diabetes, remote diabetes management, or, you know, so mm-hmm. all of these different solutions coming in, looking to contract with employers, we kind of said, well, well, wait a minute here. Everybody's taking more and more slices of primary care. What do we really want out of primary care? So we, we brought in a, a facilitator and we spent a day and a half focused on that issue and, and what would Nirvana look like? And it had many of the elements that we started talking about. One, yeah. there has to be a different financing model. There has to be an at-risk model in place that uh, you, need, you need the data to help steer people to the best providers and the technology to make it easy to do so. Um, that the primary care team should be more than the primary care physician. It should be multidisciplinary and should include a uh, nurse practitioner should include behavioral therapist, um, access to pharmacist, um, and and healthcare coordinator or navigator, if you will, where navigation took place out of the primary care team um, for that individual and steering people, and mm-hmm. and it needed to have a much richer benefit, meaning you didn't want plan design to be a barrier to accessing care. So right. in terms, 
employers are willing to accept. I think employers will give benefit back if it's value-based. Mm. Yeah, I think we've reached the point of affordability challenges with the high deductible plans where you've got people delaying care or, um, or, or basically um, avoiding care because they, they can't right. afford it. So I think employers are willing to peel back the high deductible plan and give more back into plan design if it's value-based. And I think these advanced primary care models, yeah, bringing the bringing back going back to first dollar coverage to to break down barriers to get access to good primary care. That's also going to steer you to the right specialist or the right facilities. Right, uh, is is where these where these models are going. Oh, I love that. Taking a step back, we say, okay, well now this is something we want to put in place. We're going to start taking early steps. Uh, one thing you were well known for is that you were a CEO and a CFO whisperer. You were somebody in benefits who had good tactical uh, knowledge around healthcare, but you also spoke to the financial side of the house. Would you maybe share a little bit about how you developed that capability and what are what are some maybe some instruction on how we might follow? No, I think uh, I, I was fortunate to work for two very engaged CFOs. First, Larry Bossidy, um, mm -hmm. who um, was larger than life personality, uh, very driven, um, very financially focused, came out of finance at GE. Right? Mm -hmm. Following him was Dave Cody. I worked for Dave for 12 years. Um, same career path, came out of GE finance. I uh, was running another company and came over to Honeywell to run Honeywell. Um, very strong financial orientation. And the best example I gave, can give you is an experience I had my first meeting with Dave Cody. Now, I'd met, I worked with Larry Bossidy for probably eight years at that point. So I had a sense that Larry was more big picture guy. He would, he would give you a target. We would agree on what that target would be. Then he would let you run with it. And, and off you would go. And he would give you the air cover that you needed. So what was great for both of them, they allowed me to innovate as long as I made my numbers. And what I did is I flipped it. And it's like, I need to innovate to make my numbers. So, mm. so I think the important thing is they were interested in a particular number. I had to make that number. So I would go in and basically show them the numbers first, not, not put it in the back where everything else was foreplay in their mind getting to what I want to see. So how's this going to impact me? It's like, start with the numbers. I needed to demonstrate I was going to hit their number first. Then I would talk about how I was going to get there and everything was netted out. So everything I wanted to implement that, that was innovative or whatever I wanted to do, I had already decided what all those things were. And I said, look, if you want me to get to this number, these are the things I need to do and I can get to that number. So it wasn't an a la carte thing. These weren't programs that sat in my corporate benefits budget that that I think, and this is, I think, one of the challenges many benefits people have, if it doesn't fit neatly within the health plan in their eyes, then it's got to sit in my corporate budget. And that's not the place for these. You're managing, you got to look at healthcare like a business. You mm. run your business, your premiums from your businesses and from your employees are your revenue and your claims and your administrative expense are your expense. And everything you do to manage that expense should be in that bucket. And that's the way I would approach it. So I would go in with one number and one set of initiatives that would help me get to that number. 
I didn't show him what every single one of those things cost. Right. I talked about, look, you want me to get, you want me to be flat? Here's how I'm going to get there. And right. And even the communication costs were in there to roll these things out. Any consulting costs that I needed to roll these things out. Um, wow. And the, the programs themselves. And, and uh, the reason I, I could be successful is that I made everything that I did look like any other financial report our CEO or CFO would look at. So Interesting. I, made the, I made the mistake in my first meeting with Dave Cody of showing him financial numbers the way an HR person would look at financial numbers. And we spent the first 15, 20 minutes trying to um, decipher what the hell the numbers meant. And, you know, I'm losing credibility as we're going because, you know, you know, there are certain things financially you put in parentheses, which could be a negative number or it could be a net positive number, depending on, you know, you know, how we were showing it was different than the way finance would look at it and trying to explain, well, is this a positive number? Or is this a negative number? And you're, right. you're kind of, we're just losing ground. And, and, you know, we got a half a billion dollar spend and he's sitting there thinking, I got these HR coconuts running all these money. This is not a good thing. So um, I started partnering with our CFO and I, I realize that there's a there's a set and most companies probably have this a set of usual suspects that are in the room when you go to present to your CEO, your CFO, your controller, um, maybe your your top legal person, your um, communications leader for the company, uh, your CHRO, and then you know total rewards benefits who are driving the presentation or 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 the strategy. And so I would get to each one of them before they came to the room. Mm. And I would start with my CFO. I needed to align the numbers the way he would see the numbers because what my CFO, my CEO would do, he would look at the CFO and say, are you good with these numbers? And I needed him to nod. All I needed him to do is not, if he's like, well, you know, I'm just seeing these for the first time, Dave, you know, I'd like to dig into them. You want to get out of the room with the go, the go. you want to be able to go. If it's going to lead to another meeting, you're screwed, right? So right. First, first I got my CFO on board. And if the numbers needed to be presented a little bit differently, I used the exact same templates, the exact same um, graphs that I would see in the, in the presentations they would do the street. So really, to yeah. Wall Street. Yeah. So you'd convert the benefits plan. You'd convert the benefits plan into a PL. Yeah, absolutely. Because it is and a use the exact same template that the business would present to Wall Street investors. Right. And you would present the plan that way with, you know, our income sources sort of on a profit and loss would be, you know, one line item, which is what the the business gives us. And the second line item is what our employees give us. That's our total revenue. And then you have the expenses that go out. And then you have sort of a number at the bottom. And you would present it as financials with the same graphs. Yeah, it, it was a financial bridge. It, so, and, um, and I did that because these were slides that our CFO and our CEO were very comfortable with. They were comfortable right. with the format. They were comfortable with the look. They were, so they could focus on the numbers and believe the numbers. And particularly if I checked them with my controller and my CFO first, then 
we're just having the conversation about where we're going to end up as opposed to understanding what the numbers mean because the slides were very familiar to them the more you can make your slides look like things your ceo has seen before and is comfortable with um you know you you've gotten over a hurdle that uh, i think most people struggle with when they get into that environment um, that has to build trust and got to skyrocket your credibility above right. other people who who don't sort of speak that language. Right. I and mean, then your idea of bringing it to the CFO first, sort of ahead of time, and making sure that you've got kind of a pre, you know, there's sort of a pre-wire before mm -hmm. the meeting, makes enormous sense. I I love this strategy. And well, I've never the, heard this before. Here's the other thing I would do. So getting my CFO on board was the first. Second thing, if I felt I was going to get some pushback from my CEO, um, of the usual suspects, who is the most influential with your CFO, CEO, mm. right? Sometimes that is the CFO, right? But in this case, it was our chief general counsel. It seemed like in the room, if you watch the room as to when somebody speaks, who does he listen to the most? It was our chief general counsel. So I would go to her and I would lay out and say, look, here's what I like to do. Dave's gonna go here. Um, he's gonna wanna try to increase deductibles more than we're doing or whatever the case may be. We're already at a rate where it's unaffordable or whatever the case may be. I could use your help in pushing back on him because we're gonna get to the number but he may have some ideas differently in terms of how we're going to get to the number. And I don't want him to think, well, gee, I can get even more out of this if we do what he wants to do as well. Right. right. I've got a great story on that, uh, that um, we talk about uh, pivotal moments in your career. So it's yeah. in um, 2006 or 2007 or 2006 for the 2007 plan year. We're in presenting, and I've got, for the first time, I have a plan to get us flat, completely flat for the year. You know, it just certain things lined up in terms of contract negotiations, some union negotiations, some other things going on that, that I was like two million off, and I told them I'd, I'd find a way to get the other two million. And so right out of the gate, he's thrilled. We're going to get flat. I don't have the headwind that I'm used to seeing. And I think before we would knock it down, maybe it was a 10% trend, we'd get it down to three, or we'd get, you know, we would we would be significantly below what trend was, but we were never flat. And we do this whole presentation, it's going great, usual suspects in the room, my healthcare person is with me as we're doing this. And we're right at the end of the meeting and, and, and Dave Cody says to me, uh, love everything we're doing, but I want to make one change. I want to increase employee contributions from 26% to 28% because that will make them more prudent purchases of healthcare. And so I said, Dave, uh, that's not going to make employees more prudent purchases of healthcare. Okay, mistake number one. I'm telling my CEO that he's wrong, right? So there's a series of learnings here as we go through this exercise, right? Okay. And and he goes, well, really? He goes, why not? I said, well, the, the decision I make in October about my contributions that goes into effect as a payroll deduction in January that I never see during the course of the year will have nothing to do to influence me at the pharmacy in April. Right. Right. 
I said, it's true, but how do you, it, right. I said, it's hard to deliver that message. There you go. So we, so we said, um, do you have any data to support that? I said, well, Dave, I have great data that tells me the plan design will influence behavior change. So I give him a bunch of examples, mandatory generic substitution, we're at 97% generic substitution, um, other different plan design changes we made that have had an impact and I can show that in data. He goes, so what you're telling me is you have no data to tell me that I'm wrong. So I said, I can remember this conversation like it was yesterday because it was such a, you know, in your face discussion. Sure. Right? No, like it'd be well, Dave, I said, I've got a lot of data that tells me that I'm right. So he goes, so it's your feelings, the hair on the back of your neck, your inner intuition that you're right. Um, I said, Dave, I'd bet my bonus that I'm right. Right. So great meeting. We're flat for the air. We had a great discussion. I've known Dave now at this point for five years. Uh, feeling a little cocky. So he said, really? He said, well, I want to study. I want you to get a black belt. We were a Six Sigma company. He said, I want you to, to um, look at the difference in healthcare based on premium contributions. We have several businesses that we acquired that weren't all on the same page yet, some are lower. Um, and he wanted to see if the utilization was any different. So I said, fine. And as Dave always says, he goes, how soon? He said, give me six months. Um, because I'm going to need time to pull the data together, get the black belt, to look at the outcomes and all that kind of stuff. He goes, fine. Well, from that meeting over the next six months, Dave was relentless. Whenever anybody in the room would, Dave, I feel that he would stop. He'd go, so Dave, I have nothing to do with Joe's feelings, right? It was feelings this, feelings that. He would just bust our balls about feelings all the time. In fact, my CHRO said, wish Dave would stop busting her ass about this feeling stuff, right? And it didn't matter. We'd be in a, um, a senior leadership strategic review. All these leaders in the room and our, our, our chief marketing person would say, well, Dave, I feel that we should, he stopped him. He looks at me. I said, Dave, I have nothing to do with Rhonda's feelings, right? And he's getting the biggest kick out of this because he's poking us every opportunity he can about feelings. Wow. So six months go by and um, I have the data, no correlation between contributions and utilization. So now I have oh, to that go had to feel great. Well, it did, but now I have to go in and tell my CEO that I'm right and he's wrong, right? And so pull the usual sweet moment. Yeah. Right. So we pull the usual suspects back in the room. And I got my black belt with me who did the analysis and everything. We get in the meeting, and Dave knows I'm right. Right. But he he wanted to increase contributions anyways, right? That, at the end of the day, that's what this was about. But right. he said, So were you right? I said, Well, Dave, before we get to that, I've got something for you. Now here's here's the other thing. Know your CEO, know, know the personality, know their style, know what you can do, get away with, and what you can't get away with. So I give him a CD, 10 songs about feelings. Feel like making love, feels like the first time, more than a feeling, feelings, um, just on and on. And he just loved it, broke the ice, we had the conversation. But there's something else Dave was doing with this whole feelings thing and data. 
uh, we were going through an HR transformation initiative and he wanted HR to be much more data driven, data focused. Mm -hmm. so he used this, he used me in this example as the poster child for data, not feelings. He wanted people focused on data, not feelings. And this went on well past the six months. The feelings thing kept coming up. And uh, fast forward to 2014. I left in 2014. Uh, maybe it was 2015. Uh, Patriots, I'm a big Patriots fan. Dave's a big Patriots fan. Uh, we go back and forth on games and stuff. We've been to games together. And, and um, it was the Super Bowl where Seattle was on the two-yard line. And, um, and instead of running a one-yard line, instead of running Marshawn Lynch right up the middle for a touchdown, they passed and it got intercepted at the goal line and Patriots win the Super Bowl. So I immediately send Dave an email. I said, Dave, you know why uh, Seattle lost uh, the Super Bowl? Is why. I said, because Pete Carroll decided to pass the ball based on his feelings rather than going with the data to run the ball up the middle. <laughs> That's outstanding. Yeah. So what, he, you know, keep going. You're good. No, I was going to say he, 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 he wrote a book a couple of years ago and he asked me to kind of recast this story for him because he also believes this was focused on the data in trying to get HR to think more data focused. So I, I laid out the whole story much in the way I just laid it out for you. And he said, boy, you have a good memory. I said, no, I got PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> we all, we all can remember those, those, uh, mm. those types of ex exercises when we get put through them. But going back uh, to the mistakes that I made in that meeting, one, um, one of the things I've learned, well, I fell on a sword on that thing because I didn't want to increase employee contributions, but there are other ways of doing it. And I always said, when you right. want to push back on your CEO if, or CFO, if they're, if they're, they're offering up something that you think is a little too aggressive or out in left field, I would always start with, well, we can do that. So you acknowledge that it's something that we can do. But here are the implications of it. So you don't come across as being defensive or bureaucratic. He hates when you are defensive or bureaucratic. If you're if you're so if you're defensive, he goes for the jugular, right? So yeah. it's like we can do that, Dave. But let me let me let me give you some examples of what some of the implications could be, and then we can decide what we want to do. And if I would approached it that way, we may add a different outcome. Um, but I. But I've always approached it that way since then, you know, because there are mm. other that he would propose that would be just way too aggressive sometimes. And I would say, well, yeah, we can do that. Um, but here are the implications of that. Everyone now just a quick word from today's sponsor. Hello. Hi, I'm here to pick up a prescription. Okay. Hey, your total is $80. But I have insurance. Uh, we ran your insurance, that's just your copay. Can you hold on to that for me? I'll be back later. 58 million American adults can't afford their prescriptions. Many of these people work for companies just like yours. Start giving your employees 100% medical coverage with Catalyze Health. So you don't tell him like a big difference there that I, I know I would step into would be 
you know, we could do that, but here's why, you know, we shouldn't. I wouldn't but even say that. You don't, you don't put would... any judgment into this. It's no. let me give you some examples of impact. cause and effect. Yeah. That's really smart. And that nuance is something that, that I can absolutely see myself messing up on relentlessly. This is really interesting. Yeah, but that, what other what else would you have done differently if 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 anything in, in sort of navigating this uh, sort of the tenacity there with your CEO and CFO? You know, I think it's um, only show them what they want to know and have everything else in the hip pocket. Anticipate where they're going to go. Don't give them everything unless they ask for it. I mean, if you're going in with a particular agenda, um, and you're trying to get at a particular issue. Show them how you get to the issue and anticipate all the places they may go and then put those pieces in front of them if they go there. If they don't, get out. Um, I think that's that's one. I think the other thing is read the room. Go where your CEO, your CEO goes. Um, there have been times I've gone in with a presentation. We never even opened a book. It ends up being a full conversation, just a conversation. Wow. Um, there are other times where he's, you, if he's flipping through, and the, the interesting thing with Dave, you, you couldn't go in and do a slide presentation. Because if you did a slide presentation, I control the slides, I control the pace. So he wanted a book that he could flip through. So he could, he could control how fast we were going and where we were going to go. So sometimes you think you're starting at page one and we always started at the financials and we would, but then he may jump towards the back. I wanna see such and such and he's jumping way ahead to something. If I've got the controller, I'm controlling the presentation. He's gotta wait for my pace as for me to wow. wait for pace. And so wow. he always used the book and I've had different people work for me in, in, in uh, healthcare over the years, some great, some okay. and mm -hmm. They, you know, they're trying to hold him and go through every bullet on a slide and he's getting frustrated. And it's like, I'm, I'm, I begin to just turn the page. You go yeah. where they go. If you need to kind of backtrack at something, you, you find the right time to backtrack. And then the last thing I would say is um, learn to fight another day. Meaning you take your shot at trying to change their mind. Um, and if you're unsuccessful, find another way to come at the issue, but don't belabor the issue in the room to a point where you've kind of, you're dead in the water with any chance of coming back because you've pissed them off in the process. So I've seen people do that. I've seen people not, not have enough self-awareness to realize that he's done. Don't keep going there. You, you don't keep going. Yeah. comfortable for the guy because the guy keeps going He's like a dog with a bone and it's like, he's done. You and can't keep going. I love that. It reminds me that there's an, an old story about Steve Jobs where when they first presented the iPhone, he said it was, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but he said, it, that's a stupid idea. Why would we ever do that? We've already, our, plus it would cannibalize our iPod and all these other very you know logical business reasons to put the kibosh on the iPhone ever being developed, but apparently the engineers were tenacious about it. They, they kept bringing it up 
just sort of sideways and subtly and they dropped hints and everything and they eventually got him to come around and then of course he you know it's it's the brilliant visionary idea um to to his credit he he did come around because a lot of people would be too proud to change their mind after they've publicly sort of disparaged something but um but kudos to the engineers who kept bringing it up you know i think that that ipad the, the iphone example is a great example um you know, I would get asked a lot, gee, why do employers only hear, care about healthcare costs? And so they, they don't just care about healthcare costs, they care about value. If you think about any employer, any, any product, any project, any initiative, any innovation, there's a business case and a value equation around that. And value simply is value equals quality plus delivery plus experience over cost. And you can almost apply that to anything an employer will look at. It's in their DNA and how they think about these things. But when it comes to healthcare, what do we get? We get cost information. We get mm-hmm. utilization, which is a uh, a function of is, is a product of cost. It's not a quality measure. It's not a um, delivery measure. It's not an experience measure. So yeah. employers will act, react, and respond to data. And if all you're going to give them is cost information, well, they're going to react to cost information. And and um, the iPhone is a great example because it's, if you look at when the iPhone came out and you look at that value equation, BlackBerry was still a, a pre- pretty dominant player in the market. Both quality products from a quality perspective, delivery yeah. wasn't an issue in terms of getting product into the market in a timely manner. Cost may have been comparable or maybe the iPhone was a little more. Sure. Experience totally was differentiated experience was the significant differentiator and experience is where we well quality as well but experience is where we fall down in healthcare in a big way when's the last time you've heard any health plan health system provider talk about what the conspira- what the experience will be of the consumer coming into their entity you know i raised this at a business group meeting um, once with uh, a number of health plans and health systems in the room. And they all looked at me like a deer caught in the headlights. Oh, yeah, they don't, they don't understand it. In the, in the end user's experience and how you differentiate. So even as I look at advanced primary care models, when I talk to them, they need to articulate how that experience is going to be different than what people experience with traditional primary care. And lay it out at a very basic consumer experience level if you want people to move over, they need to see a difference in what that experience is going to be. Not just the cost um, and hopefully the quality, but the experience itself. I love this. Employers act in response to data. Effectively, the our, our employers will mirror the the employer conversation we have internally will mirror the data that we feed them. If all we bring is cost data, then all we'll ever have is a cost conversation. But if we report on the experience we're delivering and we report on the quality outcomes we're generating, then the conversation will mirror back in those terms. It just follows that data. That's such a, that's a, it's an awesome principle. Um, Thank you for sharing that. I, I love that. How, you know, if if you look at new benefits managers who are coming into the space today, 
many of them might only be on a rotation for a few years or whatever as they're, you know, in uh, maybe working in HR broadly or, or whatever the situation is, maybe their life is also, and they're going to have an opportunity to be there long-term. What are some of the most important principles or advice that you might share with them? You know, I would say um, take a finance for non-financial people course. Um, maybe you can get it through training through the company, or maybe you get it externally. Um, the interesting thing is um, Dave Cody asked me to take that course uh, mm. in, in, 2012 when i'd already been working for him for 10 years and i said dave i can't believe you're asking me to take a finance for financial people i mean finance for non-financial people course you know we've been putting data in front of you from a finance perspective for years now and he goes you're going to learn things in this course i i want you to take this course and so i felt i was above the course but i'll tell you i learned a lot from this course uh, there was a lot in it that kind of reinforced what I already knew about the P&L and everything, but there were other elements in terms of levers that you pull from a finance perspective that I wasn't as familiar with and running through business cases and the like. It was a fabulous course, and I would highly recommend it. Speaking the C-suite language requires you to have a fundamental a base knowledge of the, of the P&L, of, um, of the balance sheet. And if you can push position yourself, not only if you're doing a benefits rotation, whether you're in HR, benefits, um, any other function, that's right. going to you because we're all there to support the business. We're all there to support the company. The more financial acumen you have, um, the better you're going to be able to speak the language of your business leaders and your, your CEOs. I would say that's one of the first things. The second thing I would say is take advantage of organizations like Business Group on Health because that's where your peers come together. That's where you're going to learn from others, both in terms of what's worked and what hasn't worked. When employers come together, uh, they're more than willing to share what hasn't worked as much as what has worked. You know, I've already right. said it's, it's, it's a great group therapy, if nothing else, right? And, ah. and it's, uh, it's, it is because you come together with your peers, you realize, hey, they're, they're struggling with the same things we're struggling with. And, mm. and so um, those organizations, they're great for networking, but they're also great for, for learning um, about what other employers are doing to develop relationships that you can reach outside of your own organization and ask others in your field about, hey, what are you guys doing about XYZ? And, and um, those are the two things I would say, whether you're a short-term rotation person or you're thinking of building a career in this side of things, um, that would serve you very well. No, I love that. This has been incredibly enriching. Uh, Thank you so much for, for your time. And thanks, thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in uh, this week to Broken Benefits. If this has been valuable to you, I know it has been for me. Please send a link to this interview out to friends and colleagues or others who might, who might be able to learn from this as well. Um, thanks for joining us today. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for joining us on Broken Benefits. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, please share today's show with a friend or colleague. It's free to do and it helps us spread the message to as many people as possible. Until next time.